0: Hi everyone.
1: Hey, Jane. Hi, Shane. Hi, Lauren.
0: Oh, we have three of us today. How? Uh, so, how's everyone doing? We're we're all still at home. We're in
2: quarantine. It's actually not so bad now.
0: <laughs> I mean, just to be clear, we're not. None of us are actually in quarantine, right? We're just staying at we're home. We're just yeah. We're all isolating still.
1: So, how's yeah. it been, Lauren? You said you you you're, you're you're really actually getting used to it or enjoying it a little bit.
2: I think I'm into a groove now. I'm kind of enjoying it. You know, the sleeping in, the just kind of wearing loose, comfortable clothing all day.
0: I got to say, I I mean, I obviously wish the circumstances were very different, but my partner and I just moved. And honestly, the process during all of this and moving and finding a house and all that, it was actually kind of aided by being home all the time because we could just like get up on like we get a call from our realtor like, hey, can you look at a house today at noon? And if I was in work, that wouldn't be able to happen. And so, like, again, wish the the scenario was different, but it's actually been nice being at home. And I like working at home.
2: I do, too. Although I just realized the other day, I, like, can't remember what shoes I used to wear. (laughs) That is a very good point. (laughs) Like, I only wear flip-flops now or, you know, slippers.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. That's Ah, amazing. funny.
2: But things were, I guess, very different a year ago when you guys
1: recorded this episode
0: yeah yeah. so uh, we'll we were in the building, and uh, we'll we'll get into that. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hamlin,
1: and I'm Nancy Bompy,
0: and this is third Pod from the Sun. So, yeah, like uh, like Nancy said, we recorded this interview a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago. So this is our third Voices for Science episode where we talked about one of our advocates who is a climate scientist at NASA and Columbia. Uh, She has a regular column in Scientific American and quite the impressive Twitter following.
3: My name is Kate Marvel. I am a research scientist at um, Columbia University and the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. I am a climate scientist, and I am interested in understanding what climate change looks like right now and what it's going to look like in the future.
0: Climate science is pretty, I think, nebulous to a lot of folks. Uh, Could you, like, What does your research involve?
3: Right, so a lot of times when we think about climate change, we think about global warming. We think about the average temperature of the planet increasing. But most of us don't care about that because nobody actually experiences the average temperature of the entire planet. We care how that affects the scales that we live at and things that we care about like rainfall patterns and cloud cover. So I'm really interested in what climate change means for the scales and the variables that affect us. Mm
2: -hmm. So what are kind of those uh, variables and what are the effects that we could feel like on a local level?
3: So there is evidence that humans are already changing global rainfall patterns. We are making, broadly speaking, wet areas wetter and dry areas drier. And because we are changing the circulation of the planet, the motion of air and water in the atmosphere, we're actually changing the locations of those wet and dry regions. Mm -hmm. So that's something that is really, really difficult to think about and to sit with. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some evidence that human activities are changing cloud cover patterns. So in some areas it's getting cloudier, in some areas it's getting clearer. And the kind of clouds that we're experiencing are changing. There is evidence uh, based on tree rings and meteorological data sets that humans actually affected global drought risk as early as the beginning of the 20th century.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that if you can.
3: So that was a really fun study to work on um, because the guy whose office is next door to me at NASA is an expert on drought and tree rings. And I was bored one day, so I just (laughs) walked into his office and I said, hey, Ben, tell me about these tree rings. And so he started telling me how they would drill into trees and then get this record of of tree rings. And my first question was, do you hurt the trees? And he was like, no, it's painless. It's It's like tree acupuncture. It's a valid question, right? Um, But, you know, the width of the tree rings uh, on any given year tells you something about how moist the soil was, uh, which tells you something about the conditions um, when that tree was growing. Um, And... There are thousands of tree rings that have been sampled, thousands of these records all over the globe. And we can take these thousands of trees and collate them together into things called drought atlases. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we put together a global picture of all the drought atlases that have been collected so far. And then what that allowed us to do was to really evaluate how unusual things that we're seeing right now and we saw in the 20th century were against that backdrop of things that the climate did before the Industrial Revolution, because these give us records that go back to 1400 and even earlier.
2: So actually, let me stop you for one second. So with a tree ring, what's the furthest you can go back? Is it just like the life of the tree? Like and what's like the oldest tree that's ever been cored?
3: So I'm not the tree ring expert. That's the guy in the office next door to me. Um, but there are these, these drought atlases. Some of them go back to the beginning of the millennium. So, you know, zero common era. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's using supplements from petrified wood. Um, you have pretty good coverage that goes back to about 1400. So, you know, we can tell what the what droughts were doing in the middle ages, Mm -hmm. which as a non tree ring specialist, you know, really blows my mind. You know, I think, I think that's really crazy. Um, but that kind of gets at something that I was, I've always been really worried about, right? Because we don't really know what the world looks like without us. We don't really have any recent observations of the climate without a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And, so in order to see if something we observe is strange, we generally have to use climate models to estimate that pre-industrial variability, that what the climate would do naturally. And I think these models are really credible, a lot of really smart, dedicated people have worked really hard on them, but you always open yourself up to criticism that, well, you're using, you're just using a model to estimate climate variability. And this allows us to get around that because we're not using a model to estimate that, that internal climate variability. We're using actual tree ring measurements. Um, and so what our study did is we, we took a global perspective and it was, really, it was really important to take that global perspective because I'm from California. California gets droughts all the time. Australia gets droughts all the time. The Mediterranean gets droughts all the time. But if California and Australia and the Mediterranean all simultaneously experience a drying trend, that's kind of weird. And so it's that, that spatial coverage, that real global perspective, that can really help you separate out the signal from the noise. So what we found is the tree rings kind of increasingly looked like what we would expect greenhouse gases to do to drought conditions. They showed conditions increasingly resembling that what we call a human fingerprint. And this happened until about the middle of the 20th century. And in the middle of the 20th century, things start to turn around. Things start to look a little bit different. And we don't have a great solid explanation for this yet, but we're pretty sure that it has something to do with the increased concentrations of gas and dust that we call aerosols Mm -hmm. um, in the atmosphere during that time. Um, in about the late 70s with the advent of clean air legislation, we see that start to clean up a little bit. And then we see the greenhouse gases start to play a bigger and bigger role. So we see these areas start to begin to dry out again simultaneously. So what we found is that humans very likely influenced 20th century drought conditions in kind of three distinct stages. So we saw humans were... Largely, you know, creating this, this drought pattern through our emission of greenhouse gases up until about the 1950s. And then from about the 1950s to the middle or end of the 1970s, our aerosol emissions actually had a much bigger effect on, on drought risk. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with cleaning up the air, with the Clean Air Act, with that sort of reduction in what we would call the aerosol burden, we start to see things turn around. And every single climate model... Every single, you know, thing that we have to predict this is basically telling us we should expect unprecedented drought risk worldwide by the middle of this century.
0: Climate change is consensus, except for that small minority out there for whom it isn't, I guess. And Kate has received her fair share of comments from folks who are deniers. And I think she said that the largest demographic were retired engineers, but I wanted to know, in particular, if there were any others that stood out. It seems like a lot of your job is interacting, like not only doing the science but interacting with people, whether that's in person or phone or whatever else. Um, do you like? Do you have any really like memorable experiences you've had with folks? Um, whether, I mean, it could be anything. But I'm thinking, like, have you like whether you changed someone's mind or had like a surprising experience um, in a Positive or negative way, like I feel like there's there's so many opportunities to like just sit down and talk with people. Um, I'm just kind of wondering if there's anything that really sticks out to you or anyone you've ever talked to or interacted with.
3: Um, for me, one of the most memorable transformations that I've watched is seeing my dad, who identifies as conservative and lives in Indiana, um, come around to accepting climate change as real and serious. Um, And I would like to say that I changed his mind and I totally did not. Um, (laughs) The thing that changed his mind actually was the insurance industry. Um, He thought long and hard and he realized that if climate change was not real, if if it was a hoax, an insurance company could come along and offer lower rates and undercut the competition and put them all out of business because they don't have any incentive to believe climate change if it's not real but none of them do that. And that got him to thinking, hmm, you know, maybe if these companies are willing to put their money on the line, maybe there's something to this. And I think that was important because that kind of showed that that spoke to his values. You know, he views himself as, you know, he believes in free markets, he believes in capitalism. And, you know, if I tell him, hey, dad, like, look at all these graphs and charts and and, you know, IPCC reports, he's, he's not going to listen to me because that, he he, doesn't, he hasn't built trust with that. That's not part of his self-image. But this very sort of, like, hard-nosed financial motivation um, for insurance companies, that, that was the thing that really changed his mind. Um, and I, f- I feel like that kind of, like, teaches me humility. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> if you can't change your dad's mind, <laughs> you know, but an insurance company can, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, do, what are you doing?
0: Um, kind of along similar lines about interacting with people, um, who's like, do you have, um, any like desires or, or want to, like, if you could like sit down with one person or like get your message out to one community or whatever it is, like, who would that be? Um, and I guess why?
3: Hmm. Um, I really want to meet David Attenborough. (laughs) Oh, of course. Um, Just because who doesn't want to meet David Attenborough? Uh Um, you know, I, I would love for, you know, him to speak up more. And I think he's beginning to do it because he's such a trusted Mm -hmm. face and voice. Um, I am really excited by the freshman class in Congress. Um, I think they're, there are a lot of people who are really starting to change the narrative and saying, you don't care about climate change or the economy. You don't care about climate change or jobs. You don't care about climate change or equity. You have to care about all these things because everything is intertwined. And, I, I think, you know, whatever your political stance, I think that is a message that is really supported by the science, that you can't separate out a rise in global average temperatures from the planet that that is happening to. Um, so I'm, I, I'm really heartened by that. I do think it is really important that climate change be a political issue in I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think in the 2016 presidential debates, there were no questions asked about climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's unacceptable. And I, I think, I hope that that's not going to happen in 2020. Um, we already see in the Democratic primary, a lot of the candidates actually talking about this. And my entire goal as a science communicator is to kind of be irrelevant, I just want to talk about cool science. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really want to be part of this political debate, and I'm really hoping that eventually we'll get to that point when you don't really need a scientist to say, oh yeah, it's real, um, <laughs> you know, because you're arguing about solutions, and you're arguing about you know, the best you know, timescales, and, and what to do right now, and what to do later, and investment in the future. So I, I really hope that eventually we can change our political system and, and move to that point.
0: It's interesting, this was a year ago, but um, we are seeing some of those, those climate policy things being put in place, stuff like the Green New Deal, and, and it's definitely a conversation in the presidential campaign right now. But even though uh, we talked mainly to Kate about climate stuff, uh, we wanted to talk to her as well about just how she got to where she is, and, and specifically kind of some best advice for, I guess, aspiring scientists.
3: I would say because I transitioned into climate science after my PhD, which is in physics, I asked a lot of really stupid questions to a lot of really brilliant people. (laughs) And they were so generous with their time. And I think that is something that's so essential to science, is creating environments where people feel comfortable asking dumb questions. And that's something that I'm really invested in in creating for the scientific community moving forward because it was so, so important to me.
0: So I I find it interesting that she she transitioned out of climate science, or excuse me, out of physics into climate science. I don't, actually, I don't know like what a normal or the most uh, common transition is. Um, That is
2: interesting. I heard Lauren was quite interested in this. Physics part. <laughs> I was. I just, I'm really interested in particle physics and string theory. I, it's so fascinating to me. That is so interesting. I don't think I knew that about you. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, like, science thing where I geek out. I mean, it, I just, I want to know. It's like, what is everything? Like, what is all this stuff? What is it? What does it mean?
3: Yeah,
0: and uh, she got a little stuck, but it It was okay.
2: So what made you decide to switch her master of physics to climate science?
3: Um... I mean, I did my PhD in a very esoteric branch of physics called string theory.
2: I love string theory. Um,
3: not, I, I, I mean, I, I
2: mean that I'm not just like, yeah, I do. I'm like, yeah, I've read so many books about it. I, to me, it's so fascinating.
3: Yeah, not a lot of experimental evidence for it. Um, no, but I just that,
2: the whole thing, it just fascinates me, though. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, that that's why I went into it, because I was like, what? Like quantum gravity, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of got frustrated um, with the lack of, of experimental evidence and the lack of what I saw as relevance to everyday life. And mm-hmm. I wanted to do something more applied. And, you know, having a physics background is really helpful. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad I found, found this. Great.
0: And you get to talk to Lauren about string theory. Yeah. Oh my <laughs>
2: god, I would love to pick your brain about string theory. I have so many questions.
0: Luckily, Uh, For me, Uh, we ran out of time, so we didn't quite get a chance to dive really deep uh, into string theory.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of upset that we had to we got cut off, but I hope I can pick Kate's brain another time.
1: You can watch that movie. uh, Have you seen that Particle Fever? Oh, of course!
0: Ooh, great, yeah, I like that film. Fever.
1: Great film. We actually
0: talk about how it's like a—it's a good. There are some terrible science documentaries out there. It's a good it's one. It's great, and
1: you don't it, even have to care about the science. It's just like the
2: excitement, you know? Right. It's great. It's about the people and about the discovery, and it's such a great film.
0: That'll be so. We'll do a, a future mini episode where we just digest that and talk about it. And we'll do like a movie review.
2: Oh, I'm so super excited for that! <laughs> I have so many thoughts.
0: Oh, I'm sure. All right. Well, that's all from third pod from the sun.
1: Thanks so much to Lauren and Shane for bringing us this episode and for Kate for sharing her work with us.
0: This podcast was produced and mixed by me.
1: And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And you can always check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at
3: thirdpodfromthesun.com.
0: Thanks all. And we'll see you next time.
3: So I feel like there's probably like an untranslatable German word for that feeling where you're like like, "Mm -hmm." really excited. But then you're like, oh, my God, like, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? Um, And and I feel that every day, like whatever that untranslatable German word is. um, We should make one up. We should totally make one up. I'll think
2: about that tonight at half the hour.